Welcome to the TriCatch podcast brought to you by EI2 within Farm Credit Services of America and Frontier Farm Credit. My name is Cody Schrader, sitting here virtually with Carl Horn. Going to talk to you about how we are de-risking digitization within our organization. Going to talk through uh, team culture, our three-step process that we go through, and then ultimately the end goal and the value we're trying to bring to business. Carl, you're my leader on the digital products and services team. Uh, a, a good one at that. Well, first, I know how excited we are to talk about this. This is something that we work on all the time, this de-risking of product build. You and I have got the opportunity to do one of these podcasts before. I think there we focused a lot on some of the really important elements of a strong team culture in successful product orgs. I think at that time, we had learned a lot about how to, how to interact with each other, with other teammates, with leaders, with stakeholders. We're going to talk more about that today. I think we have more to share, more that we've learned. I think a few points that we can reinforce. But I think our big goal today is to talk about some of the tangible things that product managers can do to advance their ideas, try and solve problems for the marketplace, but really uh, use a process that de-risks the build. And what we mean by that is gets you to the point of go or no-go as efficiently and cheaply and quickly as possible and putting those those go no go decisions into incremental steps that allows you to do the really cheap and easy things first so you can get to the nose faster right and then absolutely uh, build yeah build confidence over time without having to write big checks either in your time or actual money having to spend money to to buy or build things so I think this is going to be a really fun conversation. All right, Cody. So let's talk about the three tangible steps that product managers can go through to de-risk builds. I think these are three fundamental things you can do, regardless of whether your company has adopted product management or not, or if you're still tackling things as standard projects going through waterfall. I think there's elements out of these three steps that a lot of people can use. And so let's list them out. The first one is, what are the experiments you can do to validate this opportunity or validate the problems that you're seeing in the marketplace? Because as, as you know, product management, we're really trying to solve problems of a specific target market. And these ideas, as long as you're careful, they really start out as opportunities, right? And you see an opportunity in the marketplace that you think your business can solve. So you go in and really understand the journey that that target market's going through. You identify some problems. You try and go out and solve those problems. And so back to these three steps, you have the step of what are the simplest, cheapest, maybe free things that you can do to validate those problems. And Cody, something that you do really well, customer interviews. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The other two steps are escalating your work. So if you go in, conduct interviews, do a few other things to validate the problem, then you can go in and start to do the experiments that might require some design and development 
that test the riskiest assumptions. So you go and do the customer interviews, you start to think about a solution in mind that, that could solve the problems of the customer. That's uh, that second step is when you actually go in and build something, put that in front of people and get some further validation before you move to the third step, which is really all about scale. So those are the three main steps that we walk through. Let's uh, jump into the first one and start with these discovery interviews. Cody, describe your experience there. Yeah, I think when, when you talk about even that second step, running experiments, I, I think it's a, it's a bad habit for some to go to customers with that solution and ask them what they think of it. Because it's human nature. When you ask someone what they think of an idea, you're going to usually hear good feedback. And so our approach to these discovery interviews right out of the gate is to really let customers tell us their story. You can, you can guide customers, prospects down a specific path to kind of tell you about what their experience is regarding anything. If, if, if you just want to tell them, or if you want to ask them like what their last experience was buying a car, just get them to start telling their story. And as they're telling that story, you'll hear pain points. And if you do six to seven interviews and you hear the same pain point come up as customers are telling that story, you've got your pain point. So then, then you can start to go design that solution. I, I think about my, my past as, as a product manager. One of the habits that I used to have was you'd assume the pain point, assume the problem, go design the solution, go have a conversation with those, those customers or prospects and say, hey, isn't this really cool? What do you think of this? And you would always get great feedback and then you'd use that to validate whether or not you want to build it. Yeah, it's a it's a different approach to interviews for sure, but it's been successful for us. I, I love the way that you're talking about that because it is highlighting a common problem. We we showed this before that there's an easy first trap to fall into, and that is to be initially solution focused as opposed to being opportunity focused. Right, and so the the reason that happens is because solutions are tangible, right? They're easy to describe and paint a picture of what's possible and get other key stakeholders and the rest of your team to fall in love with that. And then you try and drive that into the market. And there are stories about how that works well, right? If you wanna be able to repeat that and not rely on you having the next iPhone or Amazon.com idea, we found it's best. And I think it's pretty well commonly accepted in, in the product space, staying focused on opportunities, using the opportunities that you believe to exist to inform the early interviews that you do, going in and developing a validated set of problems that and you got to do it in a way, and you can talk more about this, Cody, where you're removing the bias and what you talked about there is the aspiration people have. Like right. This Midwest nice is something that we see quite a bit where we put solutions in front of people and ask them, hey, how cool is this? And of course they rave about it. Mm -hmm. When we've tried to sell it, they don't buy it. And it's because it's really not solving their problems. And anyway, so going through the, the, the diligent process of really validating what the problems are, now you're starting to get aligned to the market. Then you can start thinking about the solutions that you believe could solve those problems. And 
Uh, that would lead us into our next step. But before we jump from there, what have you seen, Cody, is a couple best practices when it comes to interviewing customers? And then what have you seen as the challenges in discovery interviews? Best practices, I would say always record them. It is crucial, whatever medium you're using to do your interviews in this remote world that we're living in, it's crucial that you record those interviews because someone else will need to listen to those interviews to help you kind of validate the problems that you're hearing throughout that customer journey. And so it's it's also important on that same note to have multiple people involved with the interview at a minimum two, three um, you can get by with, but it's important that those those folks are taking notes. Another trick that I think has been helpful, you know, there's days you're just, you're not on your game when you're doing interviews. I mean, not not every day. I mean, you'd like to show up 110% every day, but there's some days that the customer is telling a story and you're kind of losing track of what might the next question be. What could you ask next to to kind of get a more clear story? And so, um, it's nice to have like an instant message thread kind of going on, on the side where customers or, or where your teammates are kind of pinging you with additional questions that you might want to be asking. So that's definitely been helpful. We touched on this also with the first podcast that we did, but that, that really touched on setting the team culture. Don't don't forget that you got to get your ego out of the way in terms of what you think the customer is going to say. There's been times where you know, I've done customer interviews and I've heard them say something and I knew what they were talking about. And then you like instantly try to validate how smart you are as the interviewer to that interviewee so they can feel like you're intelligent. Well, that's not the point of the interview. The point of the interview is for not, not for that interviewee to think that the interviewer is super yeah. smart, right? And yeah, so yeah. you've really got to check your ego and really listen and prompt that customer to tell the story, just like you're, you're a stranger off the street. That's a great point. Cause we're social beings, right? And a majority yeah. of our communication with other people is around building relationships. That's not mm-hmm. what this process is about. Mm-mm. And so typically you'll see it where you're trying to validate and relate and confirm and support and challenge and all those other techniques that we use just an effective communication. In this world, you're an interviewer. And what I've seen, and I'm not sure that this is, this certainly isn't the only way to do it. But when I've seen the most effective interviews, it's when the person conducting the interview is not a subject matter expert on the topic. Yeah. Because what happens there is they don't let nuances slide. They don't let phrases, acronyms, those types of things slide and they'll probe to uncover deeper into when somebody says, well, I do it because of this. If you have a subject matter expert, they infer the reason behind that action, right? Where somebody that's not a subject matter expert doesn't. So they work to uncover. And I've seen it multiple times where they'll uncover really important nuances that has informed our our product builds. I'm glad you brought that up because it's one of the reasons we partnered very closely with the user experience team. We've got a a partnership with the user experience team where one of us will lead an interview on the product team and then someone from the user experience team will will lead an interview just so we can have that skill set shared across both business units. 
But sometimes as a product manager, you're too close to the problem. You're too in love with your solution. And you've got to outsource who that interviewer is because you just, you know that you're not going to be able to check your bias as soon as you start that conversation. Yeah, it's a muscle you have to develop. And I think hopefully the listeners are starting to get a picture of what this no ego means. Mm-hmm. It's really this muscle that you develop to where you become compelled by this mission you're on or the thing that you want to build. You have to work at that. It takes time to really convert your mind into being problem focused as opposed to solution focused. But the other key point that you're bringing up here, Cody, is the importance of documentation. And if you want to sort out a trait, a characteristic, a discipline, that separates out great PMs from the rest of the pack, it's their ability to document the entire process, at least cause it to happen. And it's almost, it's almost always the PM that does that. Now we use a one pager concept here, but as you go through this process, having the ability to fully document what you think the opportunity is and, and what uh, business need it would solve, to the customer interviews where you start to validate your problems that are associated with that opportunity to going on down the path. Documentation is so critical because what you're trying to do is you're running a process that you can hold accountable over time. But if you don't ever set those standards, those goals, the expected outcomes, the, the processes that you use, it's really tough to come back in and in retro later on. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's that's something I see that you do really well. And other PMs that are pretty successful all use the similar tools. Yeah, when you have that documentation and those, those uh, interviews are recorded, you can go back and look at it and see where where it all started, right? That documentation is a living, breathing document that starts with those customer interviews. And then it moves into the experimentation and supporting documentation, whether it's additional qualitative research or quantitative research that you're doing. But that that documentation allows us product managers to hold each other accountable so we know what good work looks like because it's, it's physically on a piece of paper. What, one thing that's like where, where I get motivated personally on the documentation, it kind of feels like you're going back to college and like almost like writing like a business case like you would for a college professor that's going to get graded. Like that's kind of the, that's the headspace that I get myself in. I don't know if I've ever even told you that, Carl, but it, it makes it fun when you're kind of approaching that. Maybe I, I liked writing too much in college, but um, yeah. Yeah. There's probably a few people that don't agree with you on that. The fun part. <laughs> right. It's a fun, it's a fundamental trait of great PMs is being able to document well. A final point I think we should bring up when we're in this stage of these discovery interviews is that if you want to do this well, this process never ends. And I think what we found is that if you got your target market right and you're not too broad on this opportunity space that you're trying to look at, you get through seven, eight, nine interviews, you're going to start to see a pattern in this problem set. And you'll have enough data to be able to prioritize the highest order problems that you think your business can go out and solve while still trying to figure out what what differentiates you from the rest of the market. That's typically where you can get enough data to be able to move forward. But where, you know, we've studied product management pretty closely in the development of our own capabilities in our company. 
and it's even been tough for us, it's maintaining that cadence of if it's every week or if it's a couple times a month, it's going through and still reaching out to the customer base, still asking those same sets of questions, even building on that. Because over time, you're going to want that empathy that you have for your target market to be maintained. And that's that's really challenging. So any effort that you can put into maintaining the capability to get into the market and access your target market, we feel that that's pretty critical. At a minimum, we try to do that once a week on those yeah. those continuous discovery interviews with, with customers. A lot of ways you can do that. You can reach out to people that have never heard of you before. You've never heard of them. There's There's companies that can help. We wish there were more people that could help that. It's even a challenge for us. You can reach out to existing customers. You can number of different ways you can do that, but I think it's a pretty critical part of the process. So let's review where we're at. We have this opportunity we want to pursue. Now we're trying to figure out what are the pain points for people that are in that space. We're going in, we're doing the discovery interviews to document them straight out of the words of our target market. We're using an interview process that reduces bias, that reduces the chance that the customer talks aspirationally is not really talking about we want them in a space where they're talking about things they've actually done as opposed to things that they believe they'll do in the future. Now we're ready to move on to step two. So let's say that we found problems that we think we can solve for. That's where we get into the fun part of thinking about the solutions that we think we can drive into the marketplace. Typically what happens in there though is that the solutions we dream up have dependencies. And those dependencies we call assumptions. So there are things that must be true for that solution to actually solve the problem. And there's a lot of things that are low risk. Somebody's looking for a widget, but it's got to be, you know, inexpensive. You think you can build the web widget for a dollar. Your assumption is that's inexpensive enough. That seems pretty low risk, right? So moving forward on that assumption has relatively low risk for you long-term. You can get into risky assumptions where you're starting to depend on maybe a change in customer behavior for your solution to be valid. That's where you want to go in and do the extra steps before you ever consider scale and start to validate those riskiest assumptions. And Cody, you've done this extensively in our company. What do you think are some of the key points in this type of experimentation that are important to consider as a product manager? Well, you said it. This is my favorite part of the process. Ideation is my top strength on my Gallup top five strengths. And this is the part that really comes easy for me. Where you really want to start is brainstorming multiple solutions. Think of every single possible solution that you think could solve the problem. And then this is the part that's not really a science. Once you have all of those solutions, you eventually have to pick one. And that usually can be done by consensus with your product team. But once you have that, uh, that's when you really get down into the, the weeds of, of identifying assumptions. One of the techniques we use is assumption mapping. I know we're on a podcast. If I had a whiteboard, I would draw it up. But uh, it's a if you drew a vertical line and then a horizontal line, at the top is risky, 
at the right is unknown, at the bottom is not risky, and at the left is known. And what you're doing is you're, you're thinking of all of the assumptions that have to be true in order for that solution to work. And once you get all those documented, you place them on that grid and it helps you understand like what is the riskiest assumption that you need to go test. And where that, I think we, when we kicked this off, we talked about de-risking finding product market fit. This is a key step to doing that. What is the riskiest assumption that you need to go test in the market that has to be true in order for the solution to work? We have a ton of assumptions and really here's one that we're probably most proud of. When we were learning about the product market fit for digitizing our real estate product, we knew that one of the riskiest assumptions was that customers would be willing to provide us their personal information online and submit a real estate loan. We initially tested it with a basic form. We did not get a lot of traction there. And then the next iteration of it was a more detailed application, didn't get a lot of traction there. And then finally, as we were making iterations and along the way, we were monitoring user behavior throughout the entire application. So we knew that the way that the personal information was laid out on the page, some people weren't really that comfortable to get, they weren't that comfortable uh, giving us their social security number right out of the gate. And so we had to modify the application to get people further along into the, the app before they click submit. It took us from July 1st to September 13th to get our first application. And the day that we got that first application, we were very excited, obviously. That was key to testing this assumption in the marketplace. And as we've continued to modify the application, adjust the marketing strategy to get more qualified traffic in the funnel, we're really starting to reap the rewards. I don't think we're where we want to be by any means, but I think we're nearing one year since September 13th last year. And since that first application, I think we're over 450 applications that have been submitted. So a lot of the experiments that we're running within the application have allowed us to optimize the application and, and the marketing strategy to really get traffic converted and submitting app loan applications for us. Yeah, that's a great example. And one that we learned a lot from. Now, I know one of your principles is to make sure you're only testing one thing at a time. You try not to approach the marketplace and say, well, I've got these 13 things, 13 different mm -hmm. assumptions that I'm trying to test. And you run one experiment. You've got to get creative and have the discipline to try and break those apart and use whatever tools are available to you to test out the real world behavior and the reaction of your target market to whatever it is that you're whatever problem you're trying to solve, whatever solution you're trying to drive in the marketplace. And that can be challenging. And there's a, a few different tools, right? So we had something we actually put out into the space online, out into the territory. We marketed towards it just to test that type of market, see how they would interact. Uh, but there were other things that we needed to test that we simply did not have the traffic for. And so we used a couple different types of user testing, so we did some unmoderated user testing. This typically on very simple features that we want to get a sense of, do they like the placement? Do they know how to find this button? Do they like this wording? That type of stuff. There's several different companies that can help you with that. 
will host your design. They'll feed a bunch of traffic through it. They might pay those people a buck, you know, or whatever, a real small dollar amount. They'll come in and react to it. And so things that where you just need a consumer in general, that's an easy step. But the other side is if, if it's a little more complex and you're trying to understand sentiment and there's multiple steps involved, getting into moderated user testing where you have an interviewer, similar to who we were talking about before, walk somebody through your design and have them interact with it and tell you in real time what that's like. I'll tell you, that's right. just that, that I wasn't sure that I felt all that confident in. And when I first heard the principle that seeing it in practice, as long as you're utilizing a interviewer, whether that's yourself or somebody else in your team, that can interview in a way where you're not inserting bias, you're letting, you're really asking good probing questions, you're very patient about letting the target market, that customer, walk through and really tell their story. You can yield a ton of good data in lieu of having actual traffic in the marketplace about what it is that you're trying to build. And so those are all really important things that you need to do to validate your riskiest assumptions and, and keep you out of the trap of, you hear it sometimes where people are, you know, they'll hear an assumption and be like, I'm sure it's fine. I'm sure it's fine. Well, we, we found ourselves wrong on a number of fronts and have mm-hmm. very inexpensively deployed what we thought were bulletproof ideas based on some data that we were seeing. We didn't understand the flaws in our assumptions. And those fortunately very inexpensively failed. Certainly didn't produce any of the expected data. And I'm so glad we chose and kept the discipline of trying to do these small, fast, cheap experiments mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to approach scale too quickly. I can think of you know, three examples off the top of my head. And it's that learning that you get when you run those experiments that really improve the product overall. One thing to to touch on the experimentation and the moderated user testing, one thing that I think is worth noting also is there's a difference between usability testing and actually testing for product market fit. I think when you're actually testing the the usability and functionality of the application, you don't need your target market to test that. Like any human that knows how to interact with technology can test a lot of that stuff. When you've gone through the work, identified the the pain points, designed an experiment that's going to try to solve for product market fit, problem solution fit, that's when you let that thing fly into the market to see if it actually does the thing that you think it's going to. And you do that by testing that first riskiest assumption. That's the one thing that I think sometimes you get hung up on is, or I've got hung up on in the past is confusing usability testing with, with actually trying to find product market fit. You talked about testing one thing at a time. Another recent example that I, I know we just rolled out was the launch of our new brand Farmland on May 19th. We knew at that time that there was lots of ways that we could have optimized the site, but because we are disciplined enough to only introduce one variable at a time into the marketplace, we knew that we could only rebrand that thing and then let it fly and on its own for a certain period of time to, to see if it impacted any of our traffic. 
happy to say it hasn't. It actually influenced it for the better, it's looking like. Uh, but now we're at a point where, where we do feel like we do we can introduce new experiments in the marketplace. So depending on where when you get to the site, you're you're seeing different versions and allowing us to learn on the the back end to see what's converting the best. Yeah, great point. Uh, before we jump into scalability, let's talk about resource scarcity just for a moment, because there's a couple things that I, I want to address. One, if you're a product manager and you work in an environment where you're handed projects that you've got to manage and execute, there's still space for running these first two drills. Even if you get handed projects where, listen, build this and have it delivered by this time frame. You know, classic project management, but you're in the, the business owner, product owner uh, position. And you know, culturally, your company hasn't, hasn't adopted this, this product, um, you know, the continuous discovery, rapid iteration, problem-focused mindset, right? If there's still opportunity to really think creatively about, you know, maybe you're still delivering this end product, but could you grab even a few hours of a designer's time to wireframe some stuff? to get it in front of your customer or if you're B2B, you know, somebody representative who you're building this for, whether it's internal in your company or it's just other businesses, still trying to grab some time to inform yourself uh, is really important. The second thing I'd add is anything you can do to add in the instrumentation so that you can come back and measure what you've released into the market later on. I think anything you can do there is good and you don't need you don't need to tag every event in the system. In fact, we'd encourage you not to. It's very time consuming. But even given a, just a few hours thought, even when you're handed the project, what were the KPIs? What were the, the outcomes people expected? And even getting the time later on to go in and measure it. You know, there's there's a guy I follow on Twitter, John Cutler. And one of the things I've heard him say in the past is when you schedule the launch meeting is the same time that you also go out and schedule the data review, almost like your retro on what that product actually performed. You schedule them, uh, when you're sitting down to schedule one, you go out three months, three quarters, whatever later, and schedule the, the, the review on it. Even if your company doesn't operate off that kind of data-informed iteration model, that's still really important. So I think there's things that any product manager, product owner, business owner can do to implement some of these very simple elements of this iterative product management, even when you're tasked with executing a project. So let's move into the final step, if you're good with that, and talk about then this final decision to scale. And we've been through this process before too, but scalability is a conversation and topic in and of its own. Because let's think about this process you went through. You or your company or somebody thought about this opportunity in the market. Those opportunities come in a variety of different shapes. There's something exciting like your company wants to grow or something that brings you trepidation like a threat. Maybe there's a new competitor in the market. You've gone through the customer interviews and become informed about what are the problem points, the pain points, the key steps that you're target market has to go through in that opportunity space. You've done some validation there. You've thought about what solutions could you provide to solve the problems 
You've tackled the riskiest assumptions. Now as a company, you have to figure out if you want to fund the scaling of it. And even consider for a moment, is scaling possible? And that is a process that is fraught with challenges too. And I think there's a lot of things that sound exciting to bring into the marketplace, but not all of them are certainly scalable. And to provide an example is we've had to consider a few different things about different products we may want to bring into the marketplace, but not all areas of that have an established market yet. It may be a concept that either has way too many competitors in it or your marketplace and your target market simply not ready for that next type of solution, or maybe as a company, regulatory pressures, whatever it may be, may point towards uh, where scalability just isn't an option. I think the biggest thing that we had to consider was how we could balance scaling what we did with farmland and offering our real estate product digitally with the resource pull of automating on the back end and just how far we wanted the digital experience for this target market to be. And I think we've been able to be effective in executing a phased approach where we're going to take this one step at a time. And for us, that's been really successful. But I think hopefully for the listeners here, we've talked about a process that well ahead of making the expensive decisions to scale and go broadly in the marketplace, here's a a few steps you can run through to de-risk that uh, solution development and de-risk those builds. As you're talking about scaling the product, you've crossed that bridge, you've tested the riskiest assumptions, you feel like you have product market fit and it's time to start scaling. One of the things that I think is crucial that you consider as you're scaling the product is just focus. And Carl, you talked about KPIs and measuring success and the importance of that. I love that. I'm actually going to start doing that, setting dates after the launch, because you have to, to meet again to reconvene, to look at the data and figure out what the next step is going to be. And as the product scales, you're going to have to work with more stakeholders in the organization. You're going to be getting more traffic. As you're getting more traffic, you're getting more data that you can learn from. And it becomes kind of overwhelming to consume all of that, to manage all the relationships, to make decisions with all the data that's coming in. And so the power of focus really comes into play. And specifically for us, as we're talking about digitizing our real estate product, you know, it's it's focusing on the tools and content and features that we that we need that are going to convert to an application being started. Let's focus on an application workflow when a customer or prospect is in the application workflow and identifying friction points uh, within that application. And then it's focus on the post submit process and how we improve our ability to to get loans closed. And I think with the more traffic that products, where, where this kind of like translates into other products is the more traffic you get to products, the more data you're going to consume and the more focus becomes even more crucial for that long-term product success. Yeah, excellent points. You know, it's important not to confuse scaling with, now go do it all. Yeah, I think there's too many companies that have gone wide when they really should have gone deeper and gotten yeah. better and better at solving the problem. So it's not, scaling offers so many different complexities that the wider you go, the less 
likely the less effective you you get. And so mastering the things that you understand the best are typically a really good approach. And I think, you know, here we've done a, a good job of being very careful about staying focused on the core problems that we understand best and being very careful about tackling or taking on the next layers of problems. And we're starting to do that now, but we've taken a, a very careful and regimented approach to that. So we we talked about scaling. We, we went through the three steps. One thing that I, I really wish we would have hit on that I think we overlooked was how we de-risk experiments and working with stakeholders throughout the the organization. We're a larger organization, and so it's it's very important that we're managing our reputation and and all of that in the market. And so when we think about experimentation, especially in market experimentation with prospects and customers, we take a lot of necessary steps to ensure we're we're not rolling something out to all of our customers. And so something that we're very diligent on is is working with stakeholders and identifying certain segments of the market and a certain number that we're trying to hit that we want to test that experiment with. And so what's been really cool throughout the the organization is we've worked with stakeholders, whether it's risk, legal, marketing, the application development team, getting everyone aligned to the the actual experiment and being comfortable rolling that out to a smaller audience has been really neat to see how the organization has reacted to that as opposed to rolling out a massive experiment to to our entire customer base. I think that's that's been one key component to our three-step process that has helped us get a lot of traction within the entire company. Okay. Well, I think that was a, a pretty good walkthrough. Three steps in the way that we see them. So you can de-risk visualization, now, how you go through those discovery interviews, how you go through the steps of de-risking your riskiest assumptions. And then finally, a couple things around how you contemplate scaling and still remain focused. Cody, this has been a lot of fun. I enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. Catch Thank you, you uh, at the next podcast. 